Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagram Radian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. We recently spoke with Rear Admiral Steve Moorhouse, the Royal Navy's Director of Force Generation, during his visit to the United States. Moorhouse took on his new job in January after commanding the record-setting seven-month deployment of HMS Queen Elizabeth last year that included operations across the Mediterranean, the Black Sea, the Middle East, and across the Pacific. At 72,000 tons, the largest ever British warship and flagship of the fleet, carried a combined UK-US Marine Corps air wing of fifth-generation F-35 Lightning II fighters and was escorted by a US destroyer and a Dutch frigate, exercising with more than 40 nations. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Here's our conversation with Rear Admiral Morehouse. Sir, thanks so very, very much for joining us. We know how busy you are. No, it's absolute privilege to uh, to join you and uh, and to talk a little bit more about the deployment. Uh, I- indeed, um, I, I want to start. I'm not going to ask you to talk about Russia, but Russia is making headlines, massing forces on on Ukraine's border, including naval uh, capabilities. A Black Sea, that, uh, a battle group that's arrived in the Black Sea, and naval forces are as much about. Um, hard capabilities as strategic messaging. The Russians are investing in new ships, new longer range weapons, unmanned capabilities, and indeed so are the Chinese. And both of them are developing sort of very novel hybrid capabilities, little blue men, uh, if if you will. You're a first order operator, but also a strategist that's charting uh, in some cases, in many cases, and indeed the future of the Royal Navy. What are the things that these two are doing that you find most interesting? And are most clearly telegraphing what the future of naval warfare is and how in turn you and the Na- uh, Royal Navy leadership are crafting that force of the future? Um, oh, that's, that's a great question. I, I, I think what we're seeing is um, the blend, and, and maybe it's always been the case, but the blend between traditional um, hard power capabilities and then uh, more novel, innovative uh, capabilities that are coming in, but also um, that 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 spectrum of uh, of you call them little you know uh, men, little green men, so proxy forces uh, as well. But I think both nations that you've referred to there, it, it's the you know it's potentially a step away from traditional platforms as we may see it, particularly with regard to Russia in frigates and destroyers and aircraft carriers in the way that you may see. Uh, in Western uh, NATO-type nations, I think it's that uh, it's, and, and therefore it, it's not having to to map it like for like, but understanding um, what that you know potential threat uh, looks like and how you would counter it, uh, and in, equally how we embrace similar novel um, drone technologies, um, data, information warfare, um, etc. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to the deployment because I want to uh, talk to you a little bit about that, about mapping what the strategic future of the Royal Navy uh, is. All, all navies face pressure, and that's actually uh, sadly been driving them to trade size for capability. Each navy is getting smaller in order to develop and, and field more, more capable assets or make trade-offs the way that they wouldn't. For example, uh, your command, uh, Queen Elizabeth and its sister ship, Prince of Wales, are are hybrid ships. They're not built to the standard of an earlier generation warship in some respects, 
but that's also done to get as much capability for, for, for the dollar. I want to take you to the deployment, uh, uh, which was uh, extraordinary. I don't think there was a first carrier that's done as much cross-decking of operations, uh, more operating and more seamlessly operating with some 40 nations uh, around the world as, as you made your way around the world. Talk to us about some highlights and high points of that deployment, but also tells us tell us what that deployment means because it was Admiral Mike Mullen uh, some 15 years ago that talked uh, not just about a 300-ship American Navy, but actually a 1,000-ship Navy that's composed of coalition and allies and partners working together. What did, what did the deployment tell you about the future of coalition operations, and what are the lessons well, learned to improve the game going forward? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 mean, I sort of link it to your comment about uh, it's a hybrid ship and a trade-off. I mean, I mean, warships of old with, you know, huge, thick steel sides were designed to, it was almost to, you know, to protect them from the impact of munitions. I think now what we're looking is that, that, that you know, the threat is defeated before it comes to you. It's that layered defense. And, and what the deployment showed is, is if you, if you can design into your platform um, the ability, and, it, and it's a buzzword, I know, but interoperable, and, and, and what do we really mean by that? Well, uh, I, I touched on it in the interviews yesterday. And the, the speed of data now is, you know, when I joined the Navy, it was flags and flashing lights and, and slow messages by HF radios. Now it's traveling at, you know, at, literally at the speed of light um, with, with data. And so when you operate with other nations, you've got to be on the same systems. Uh, but the, the, the digital integration is absolutely critical. And if you're going to get to a thousand ship Navy, as Admiral Mullen would describe, then it's critical that your partners uh, are all operating the same systems. And I've regularly used this analogy of, of an, you know, a one iPhone to a, to a Samsung phone or to a Nokia, whatever it may be. And too often we hamstring ourselves because our, our digital protocols um, are, are different. But what we saw, particularly with F-35, but more broadly with our surface platforms is if you're working closely, you're training and exercising, you're developing common operating procedures and doctrine, then the navies particularly, wherever they are, you know, can, can, can plug in seamlessly, whether that's in the Mediterranean, uh, the Arabian Gulf, or across in the Philippine Sea. And that's what we saw. And, and so integral to the design of not just Queen Elizabeth, but our Type 45s and our Type 26 frigates going forward, is that ability to, to dock seamlessly into the architecture that, that's there in that particular theater. The United States is moving to the JADC2 uh, concept, the Joint All Domain Command and Control System. Uh, there is a concern that as the United States always lurches ahead on these developments, that it, it would you know, create an interoperability gap. Um, you're crafting also the strategic um, um, alliance uh, or the deepening of the strategic alliance between the United States Navy and the Royal Navy. Um, where does interoperability stand on that? And do you think that JADC2 causes potential challenges? Or do you feel that you're uh, integrated enough into those planning to make sure that any future operations uh, remain as seamless as you experienced? Uh, in this deployment. Now, uh, and that, that, is a, uh, that is a real challenge because the danger or, or with, with some of the most advanced technologies where you want to be is that you then can't bring every ally um, and, and partner with you. And we certainly saw with some nations that the, the information systems that you use, uh, the protocols are not the same. And therefore, you do have a, you know, the challenge in fusing the data and 
and the common operating picture that I see with one nation is not necessarily the same as I do with another, and there's, there's a time lag, and it is trying to bridge that gap and and wherever possible get everybody onto that same net. But but it, that is a real challenge, and I think um, you know particularly for NATO that is what we've got to get our arms around and really those you know particularly in the maritime uh, you know the, those you know, the, the sort of um, leading nations are really trying to work together to operate those same systems um, because the one thing I you know was brought home uh, crystal clear for me in the in particularly in the eastern Mediterranean the speed of decision making um, is, is you know seconds count uh, and whether you're operating with a you know as we were there was Italian units French units um, out there as well as the Sullivans as well as Avidson from the, from the Netherlands Navy that having the same picture so that commanders are able to make timely and effective decisions on the same um, uh, uh, detail and information is, is, is pivotal. Um, uh, at, the, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how good uh, the F-35 or Queen Elizabeth uh, are, it, uh, logistics, 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 logistics uh, at, at the end of the day. Uh, new ship, first uh, major deployment, uh, new airplane combined with the new ship on its first major deployment. Uh, some questions about whether or not reliability was going to be a factor for, uh, for both. Uh, you're the man who, who lived the dream. Um, what were the lessons learned? in terms of sustainability so there were, there were, for both platforms? Yeah, the, the, the naysayers were, were, were always uh, uh, slightly concerned about the, the logistic solution for F-35 and how the global support system would, would underpin it. Uh, we, did, we didn't just test ourselves, and then we wrapped COVID around it as well. Um, and, and actually, um, we couldn't have asked for more. It, the, the system worked um, uh, really well. The availability we saw out of the jet, uh, it was... Um, the highest level in the air wing of all the different aircraft types. Um, there is definitely work as you would, un, you know, absolutely expect in the the inventory of stores that you take away in your deployable spares pack. Uh, just needs refining. It always does. It. It's an iterative process. You realise that you use less of washer type A and you needed more of washer type B, but but you need operating experience. But the concept and the way uh, stores were delivered to us. Um, worked really well uh also again it plays back to that interoperability so you know working out in uh in the indo-pacific uh utilizing allied logistic solutions so whether that's coming you know via uh, via japanese uh, logistic solutions or the u.s infrastructure that was already there i think that's the other bit is, is being you know having uh that multinational um interoperability gives you other ways of solving your problems you're not just there on your own um and uh, and in some ways there were lessons that not that we'd forgotten in the navy but you know having not operated a carrier group for for a wee while there were things that you know that were brought back to the front of our minds and, and reminded us exactly uh you know how important it is to have a, a multinational solution um, you, you mentioned the Pacific, obviously, uh, something very, very important for uh, both our uh, nations. Obviously, United Kingdom is a global power. Uh, and, and Britain is now part of the partners of the Pacific Agreement with the United States, France, Japan, Australia, uh, and, the, and the Kiwis. What does that mean for the future UK role uh, in the Pacific um, and, and, and future deployment cycles and even forward basing uh, of assets. I know that there's been an investment in Singapore as, as a forward uh, forward base, uh, again, returning Royal Navy, obviously, to Changi and to uh, Sembawang. Uh, but, but talk to us a little bit about what this alliance and this partnership means 
not just for the United Kingdom, but combined US UK capabilities in the region and indeed French and other capabilities in the region as we as we bring allies and partners to bear. I think from the UK perspective uh, specifically, it's an underlining how important the region is to us. Uh, the growing economies in there, uh, the trade uh, you know, that we as a, as a nation um, uh, do with the region uh, is really important. Uh, you then ally that we're a maritime island nation. So you know, everything that's moving at sea is really important. And therefore, you know, we need it to move safely. We need it to be reliable. And, and like a number of regions in the world, you know, the, the, the Indo-Pacific is really important to us. So, so the recent integrated review clearly highlighted the importance and, and we wanted to have a, you know, a sort of increased presence and a, a greater persistence. Now, that's not going to be an aircraft carrier deployment, um, you know, every six months or so. It'll be at a periodicity. But there are other ways that we're trying to increase our, our footprint there. So we've had the, the recent... Uh, Deployment of HMS Spey and Tamar, um, our, our two uh, ships are going to, you know, be, be permanently based in that region. We'll employ an innovative uh, crewing model, so the the personnel will roll over during that time, so they are more persistent. But we'll see more training teams there, not just from the Royal Navy, but from the Air Force and from the Army, and it's across all sort of strands of government. So you know, uh, increased diplomatic activity, training activity, education, and so on. And therefore, with that persistence, you end up thickening your relationships with the regional partners, as you know, you know, with ASEAN and all that we're doing there. So that the activity allied with other European nations that understand the importance, you, you know, you've named them there, France, etc. Um, I think it's just really important that we, we better understand it. In a way, maybe over the last 15 to 20 years, we've understood, uh, you know, the Gulf region. I think it's just underlining the importance of that particular region for, for our nations you know, and, and, and the growing economies. Um, we have uh, two minutes and I've got three questions. So uh, we're <laughs> going into a little bit of a, a, a little bit of a lightning round. Um, sea power, uh, maintaining sea power forward in scale uh, is really a logistical challenge. And that's where you need uh, dry docks and infrastructure. Uh, I note uh, with some disappointment that uh, the United States, for example, no longer has, since 2016 hasn't had a floating dry dock in Guam, for example, which is an important signal and an important capability. Are you comfortable with the logistical capabilities you have in theater to support the added flow of ships uh, regionally? Yeah, as, as an operational commander, you always want more of everything. Um, and, and it's a balance in this trade-off. We all live within a financially constrained uh, or, or envelope. And it's just understanding, you know, at a particular time where we want to make the investments. Um, I, again, I think it plays to having multinational solutions as opposed to individual nations having their own, how we can support one another. But logistic solutions and docking is something we've got to look at, um, you know, more, more broadly, not just in that region, but making sure we have solutions, you know, globally. Um, let me ask you a broader uh, UK future uh, capabilities generation question. Obviously, a time of great modernization, astute program is uh, tailing off, dreadnought program starting off. You have Type 26 uh, in build, Type 31 in uh, development. Obviously, the two carriers are now uh, completed. Um, what does the future expansion picture look like? Because if you look at it on virtually every metric, the Royal Navy becomes more important worldwide to the United Kingdom and also allies and partners worldwide. Um, is there a growth map uh, to grow one of history's greatest navies? And what are some of the other discrete long-range strike and defense capabilities you're going to focus on developing? 
Absolutely. So, you know, I've, Navy, I've been in the Navy now for, for 30 years and, and, and we're growing. And that's a fantastic story uh, because defense is tra- traditionally, I think, across the world, you know, got smaller in, in ship numbers, aircraft numbers, regiments, et cetera. But, but the Royal Navy is growing. Uh, so, you know, we've, we've, we've got to get a workforce that's uh, reflective of that. Uh, how we crew our vessels will be different. Uh, you know, I've talked about persistence in the, in the, in the Indo-Pacific. You know, so the, the, the crewing models have, need to evolve as well to adapt to that modern age. Um, so you've got the platforms, but it's the capabilities on top of it as well. So it, it's lethality, uh, the systems that they're employing, uh, and embracing greater technology, um, as well as those crewed solutions. It's, it's, it's embracing uncrewed solutions, and whether that's subsurface vehicle, surface vehicle, or, or in the air, understanding where, where a, a crewless solution app, you know, actually adds to it. You know, we're, we're a people-based organization first and foremost, but we absolutely need to embrace innovation, technology, automation, where it adds value and strength to the overall fleet. And I think that's what we will see going forward is, is the blended solution that best marries you know, the, the human and the, and the computer, for want of a better phrase. Um, and then also in that information warfare space, I think that's really important. The narrative, who owns it, how you stay ahead of it. You know, and that's always been a challenge, uh, I think, for, for some Western nations. Um, and, we, and we've got to get better and quicker and more agile at that. And they, that, that requires different skills. And I think as we start to recruit our young sailors, um, you know, the, the core professions that we may have had 20 years ago, they subtly change because they reflect the technologies and the different capabilities that we employ. So it's, it's hugely exciting times. Um, and it's not just bringing the Royal Navy. It goes back to where we started. It's bringing our partners because you, know, the, you get to your 1,000-ship Admiral Mullen fleet by, by bringing others with you, training with others, integrating with others, educating with others. And I think that's the really exciting uh, future that we've got. Uh, let me ask you one last uh, AUKUS question uh, before we go. Uh, I was going to also give you kudos, by the way. Um, you know, I think uh, navies around the world could learn from the Royal Navy in terms of getting a lot of value from the ships, uh, because um, I think it's nothing short of magic. Every place on the planet I've ever been appears, uh, sir, to have either a Type 23 or other asset uh, there. And you begin to think, wow, it's a it's a small navy. And yet you, you always manage to be wherever it is you need to be when you need to be there. Um, let me ask about AUKUS. Uh, obviously, uh, the strategic cooperation between the United States Navy uh, and the Royal Navy have been uh, deep uh, for a century. Uh, obviously, the links with uh, the Royal Australian Navy go deep. And now we have the uh, agreement to furnish uh, Australia with uh, nuclear uh, attack submarine capability. I know we're still in the study phase. Um, are there any moves you're contemplating from a force generation standpoint to send um, nuclear warships uh, to Australia on a more regular basis. I know there's been some discussion about forward basing uh, nuclear submarines out of Australia as not just augmenting uh, US and allied capabilities there, but also sort of setting the foundation for a future Australian capability. Uh, what's the latest on that front? Because this strategic agreement is is seen as a, as a watershed. So I think, I think that's something we'd absolutely want to be able to do. So uh, and, and it goes back to earlier questions we had about logistics and docking and all of that support. So I think as, as, as Australia develops and builds its capability, then it offers you the opportunity to do exactly that of, of sending uh, not just a you know, nuclear-powered uh, submarine, but also a whole range of assets uh, to out there to work together. And it goes back to it, it's all the different lines of training, education, operating together, development. So 
So I think as they as they build their capability and infrastructure over the coming years, then inevitably there will be a drive and a desire to to you know for for vessels to to spend time out in that in that region, and and it, and it you know orcas the the headlines that have been attracted have clearly been around submarines and understandably so, but there's much much more to it. We're we're F35 partners. Uh, type 26, um, et cetera. So, you know, the, the future there, I think, is really rich, um, uh, you know, and it goes beyond just that headline capturing of, of the submarine element. I recently interviewed uh, Admiral uh, Pierre Vandier, the chief of the French Navy. Uh, and one of the things the Admiral said, which was very thought provoking, we were discussing sort of making the case for sea power. And one of the arguments he made was, look, any future conflict, given um, the challenges of, of territorial strike among great powers is likely going to be played out at sea, in space and cyberspace, in, in the commons. Um, you know, are navies doing as good of a job as they could in arguing for resources, ultimately? Um, I, I don't want to put you in the center of, of sort of a, a political question, but it's somewhat more of a strategic question as well in terms of what the likely future of warfare is, what contours and shapes it takes. Uh, one of the other points Admiral Vandier made was we have to improve training because conflict could erupt so quickly. You know, old-fashioned training that's not high intensity is, is not really a value. I know that the UK prides itself through the FOST system of, of really training people in high-intensity operations. Um, what's, what's your sense on, on, on that, on sort of the fundamental role of sea power in future warfare and the case that needs to be made on why that investment is so important. I, I think I would absolutely agree with him. It's, it's always a challenge because I think every head of the service would want more. They can see the role that their service can play. And that's for them, for the politicians then to understand that each of the, in the review post process of that particular nation, the balance of investment across the services. There definitely, I think, seems to be a sane sense at the moment of the maritime, you know, moving to the fore and whether that just reflects particularly, you know, a number of Western nations uh, and campaigns over the last 20 years or so, uh, you know, in in hotter, sandier places and, and, and not a reluctance to be involved in that, but a sense that that may not be where we'll go in the future. So you definitely see in our own intervention greater review in the UK has seen an investment in, in, in the Navy and the maritime, you know, but a lot of these things tend to be sinusoidal. Um, and, and, and it's making sure when you, uh, I, I believe, when you've got that period when, you know, there's a prominence for it, that you make best use of it. Um, but it, I think the allies and the partners and the interoperability are absolutely critical because no single nation is going to be able to to do it and be the global policeman. So, so maintaining the direction of travel with our closest partners, be that France, Australia, United States, or NATO, um, is absolutely critical. So that you know you, the, the sum of the parts is is always greater. Um, I, I think going forward. Sir, thanks very much for being so generous with your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, and uh, the Fairwinds following sees uh, on the new job and, and look forward to having you back on again on the program uh, soon. That's very good. No problem at all. Thanks. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. 
Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.